Welcome back and thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm with Terry Fakes. And today we are doing a lamentation on the book of Lamentations. This will not be the most optimistic, cheery podcast we've ever done. Uh, That is certainly true. You know, one of the things in prepping for this episode, uh, you read a book like this. uh, It's a relatively short book. It's probably on par with some of the shorter minor prophets. But there, it's kind of curious as to why this book is its own book and why it is where it is in the Old Testament. And so I thought maybe even before we get into the historical situation, it might be good to talk about why this little prophecy, this little lament is where it is in the Old Testament, why the Old Testament is arranged the way it is, because it can be difficult to jump into the Old Testament, whether you're on a Bible reading plan or you're doing a book study of some kind. It is not arranged in chronological order. Instead, they have a different organizing principle. So maybe give us a brief summary of why we find this book where it is, and then we can jump into what's going on historically when this book is written. Yeah, great question. Then this is going to be kind of a high-level overview to your English uh, version, your Protestant Christian version of the Old Testament, and the way why is it organized the way it is, and there actually is a little logic to it. So you start out with the book of Genesis, and the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, start with Adam and Eve, quickly move to Abraham and the Jewish people, and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is coming out of Israel. And so you're just moving through history with the formation of the Jewish people. Once they get to Israel, the promised land, Uh, with Moses, then they have a period of time after he dies when they go into the land with Joshua. Joshua is the next book. We're in chronological order. And then once they settle in the land for the next 400 years, they don't really have an organization. And so their exploits of the 12 tribes of Israel are in the book of Judges, because all they have is not really a government, but they just have certain key figures, people like Gideon and Samson and the last of the great spiritual judges of Israel named Samuel. And so chronologically, now we're at about, no, 1000 BC, you move into First and Second Samuel, and that tells how Samuel, the last of the great judges, brings in and anoints a king, Saul, and David, and then Solomon. So that's the books of First and Second Samuel going down into the 900s, so it's chronological as well. After Solomon, the kingdom splits in two, a little civil war. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and you have a bunch of kings. Well, that's the book of First and Second Kings and the book of First and Second Chronicles. And so it takes us all the way down through the next few hundred years until the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. That's kind of where our historical part uh, basically breaks off. Now we move into a a period of books that aren't organized chronologically, and they are the wisdom literature, think Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, etc., And then near the end of the Old Testament, and I'm not covering everything here, but there's a grouping of prophets, and they're all grouped together because of what they did, not necessarily because of when they did it. So, for example, Isaiah was God's messenger, preacher, prophet to Israel, oh, say around 700 BC. Then you move into Jeremiah, 
and Ezekiel and Daniel. They were also prophets bringing God's message, but they were about 100 years later, say roughly 600 BC. And so, for example, the book of Jeremiah is the, the recording of his preaching to Israel right through that time when they were conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And Jeremiah was alive before that and said, hey, God is going to bring judgment. He was alive after that. And so the tiny little book of Lamentations, if that summary makes any sense, is from ancient tradition attributed to Jeremiah after he had you know, written, the Holy Spirit had dictated basically what his message was in this period of history. This is just a book of the lament and the grieving of the Jewish people. So this little book of Lamentations is tucked behind Jeremiah because it's attributed to Jeremiah, but it also is the grieving for God's judgment on Israel when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. Yeah, like a lot of other books in the, uh, in the Bible, specifically you see this in several of the New Testament books, almost nobody thought that this was written by anybody other than Jeremiah until about 200 years ago. Right. And then a lot of people decided this probably isn't Jeremiah. There's a, there's kind of a bias in a certain uh, layer of scholarship to um, anything other than the Orthodox norm must be true. And the burden of proof is then placed on, you know, genuine authorship, whether it's Paul or Jeremiah or somebody like that to prove that they're the author when that's what most people have believed for the history of the church. And in this case, the thing that's kind of interesting about the authorship of Lamentations, as opposed to something like Second Peter, which is often disputed, or uh, certain letters of Paul, or you know, even one one or two of the Gospels, is that there actually isn't anything that says who wrote this book. Uh, this is a this is an implication of how the canon is organized, like you explained, and then secondly, the style and place and theology of the person writing it. Uh, which is very similar to the book of Jeremiah. In fact, in the Septuagint, which so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament compiled in the first century BC, they often have little superscripts on the on, on these Old Testament books. And this one is kind of interesting. So at the very beginning of the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, it says, and when it came to pass after Israel had gone into captivity, and Jerusalem was laid to waste, Jeremiah sat weeping and composed this lament over Jerusalem and said. So that's not something that we have in our English Bibles, uh, and we don't consider that to be an inspired portion of Scripture, but it does give you a nice sense of what people thought that, that this, this book was and who wrote it uh, up until the time of Christ and thereafter. The only reasons that people really argue about this, the authorship of this book, is uh, because there are linguistic and stylistic differences that you can point to between the long book of Jeremiah and the short book of Lamentations. And we've covered those kinds of arguments in other episodes. Right. But the thing that's different to me is if you say that First uh, Timothy maybe was not written by Paul, it was written by somebody else, even in a Pauline school, you have to deal with the fact that it says that it's written by Paul. Right. And if you believe that that's inspired, then you have a real problem on your hands. Is this, you know, an inspired lie of some kind? Is it 
okay, maybe it was more acceptable then to, you know, say something under the heading of a teacher. You have you have big problems. Whereas in, in the book of Lamentations, since it doesn't actually claim to be written by Jeremiah, it's probably a little bit more permissible to believe that. But the question comes back the same either way. Why believe that anybody else wrote this book when the mass of tradition, the general reading, the sense of it seems like it was written by Jeremiah? Exactly. I mean, we, as you say, we've talked about this before, but it seems to me the burden of proof would be on recent interpreters uh, because the people that were closer to these events for more than 2,000 years have thought one way about it. I'm not saying they can't be wrong, but I think the burden of proof needs to be on re recent interpreters. And frankly, the burden of proof needs to be bigger than there are some different words used in Lamentations than Jeremiah uses. That's that's not particularly compelling. So yeah, I, I don't take those things seriously, but you're right. Ever since the German critical school about 200 years ago, it has been fashionable to doubt everything about the Bible. Well, if you've read this book before, one of the things that pops out to you is this is like several of the Psalms that are lament Psalms. It is um, almost a prayer to God. It's kind of a mix between prayer and prophecy, but it's a dialogue that the, that the prophet is having about something terrible that's happened. So there's a mix of sadness and lament. There is speculation about the future. There is uh, some blame casting about the past. There is some remembrance of what God has promised. This is a specific genre of prophetic literature, almost a subset of what we see in the big prophets like um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But one of the things you'll notice as you read through here is that the, 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 the entire book is basically describing a particular event within the exile, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem, and more specifically, the destruction of the temple. And so I want to start with that, because I think that is probably the main theme of this book, is a, a theological and personal reflection on the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And I want to just paint a little bit of a picture here about why this would have been so devastating. This is, this is a bigger deal than just people were exiled into a foreign land. If you think about the whole arc of the Bible, as you described earlier, the pinnacle moment was arriving in the promised land, taking the city of Jerusalem, building the temple. God's presence comes down, fills the temple. And then immediately after that, after Solomon uh, prays, we get the narrative that the kingdom begins to split. The people begin to rebel. They don't do what God told them to do. Things get go from bad to worse. And you have a couple of exiles. And then finally, you have this big, decisive destruction in the mid-sixth century. Now, for an Israelite, this would have been more than just the destruction of their homeland. This would have been uh, a radically faith-shaking event. So right. we have the promise of God, the city of David, the house for his name, which has been destroyed by a pagan nation. One of, one of the commentators put this pretty well. Succinctly put, the fall of Jerusalem marked the collapse of everything for Israel, not only physical property, relationships, and national and political identity, but also the very core of Israel's convictions, aspirations, and hope. You know, that's exactly right. Let me put this, imagine yourself uh, a Jew at this time, and you know a little bit of your history. So let me give you a, a key event. In 722 BC, 
So this is 586, so about 140 years earlier. The Assyrian king Sennacherib had come down and destroyed the northern part of Israel, and he had come down and surrounded Jerusalem. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 19. At that time, Hezekiah was the king in Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet was there in Jerusalem with him. You'll see this in 2 Kings 19. And they were completely outnumbered. They really had no hope at all. And so they go into the temple and they lay it out and they pray to God and they say, God, you will have to rescue us. And if you remember that story, sure enough, the next morning, God answers and said, you won't need to lift a hand. I will defeat these Assyrians. I will protect Jerusalem. I'll protect the temple. This is where I dwell with my people. And sure enough, the next morning, all these Assyrians are dead and Sennacherib leaves and God literally protected his city, his people, etc. Now, fast forward. You're living right after the destruction by the Babylonians in 586 BC. So now what do you think if you're a Jew? Well, you really only have two conclusions. Number one, you're, you're struggling with why did God protect his temple and his city and his people in 722 and the Babylonians could do it? One option is the Babylonians are stronger than our God. But the conclusion to which they actually come and which is actually true is God left his people as a judgment for their sins, which, by the way, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel have had been telling them and warning them, you need to turn back to God. And so it's face-shaking in the sense that our God left us because we were disobedient. And that has to shake the very foundations of your faith. Yeah, I think there's a lot of places in the Bible that talk about disappointment, that talk about catastrophe, that talk about when bad things happen. But I think one of the unique things about the book of Lamentations is it is addressed to people who have undergone a spiritual and theological catastrophe on top of everything else. Right. Um, so the, the exile generally is something that across the Old Testament is not just attributed to these captors who have come in, whether it be the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But it's something that actually God has done. So if you read the right. book of Lamentations, one of the things that you're going to see is throughout the entire book, Jeremiah attributes what has happened to God's plan. God has done this. God is the one who brought uh, the enemies against Israel. God is the one who's cast them down. And in fact, he goes as far in, in verse chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Um but hear all you peoples and see my suffering, young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So this is a theological catastrophe because they are the people of God. They are his chosen nation. They're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And yet they've completely and totally failed in uh, their task of doing that. And, and that's where we have to be uh, pretty aware of the larger story of what's been going on in the Old Testament, because exile was actually promised all the way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So if my people do not obey my commands, God says, I will send you into exile, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So this has been in, this, this has been in um, the window of possibility for Israel for a very long time. And in fact, the prophets have been saying this for a long time leading up to this, and now it's finally happened. Again, in, in chapter 2, verse 17, um, Jeremiah says this, the Lord has done what he purposed. 
He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. So I think this is a pretty obvious thread that runs through Lamentations. But when you step back for a minute, this can be kind of troubling to read something like this. How Mm -hmm. could it be? It's a lot more comfortable to say, okay, Israel rebelled. God allowed them to be conquered, but the blame is really on the Babylonians, because this is a really brutal conquering. Instead, what you see Jeremiah saying in Lamentations is, God has done this. He said he was going to do it. We didn't hold up what we said we'd do in the covenant. Now he has brought this army here. He's thrown down without pity. That's a really tough situation to find yourself in. It is. You know, the interesting thing is you see, again, back in 722, God intervenes for his people and literally against all odds, all physical odds, they end up succeeding against the Assyrians, but here they fail. And so you get this idea that they have broken the covenant relationship with God, and this didn't happen overnight. As you said, the prophets have been talking about this 800 years before when they made this covenant, God said, here are the terms of the covenant. And so you get this sense that it it really is on them. And so what has happened when God removes his presence from his people, the natural consequences of the world happen. Jerusalem isn't the only city the Babylonians destroyed. The only reason they didn't destroy them before was God intervened for his people. But once you forfeit that covenant protection, that covenant relationship, you're you're basically in the world with everybody else, and you see the consequences of that. Right. And I, I think one of the things is, looking at this from a New Testament perspective, we maybe even more than somebody in this situation would have, we typically think of God bringing about good things. Um, God is always the rescuer. He is always the one providing salvation and mercy and grace. But the whole biblical witness would point us to the fact that it's, it's perfectly just and perfectly consistent with God's character to punish sin and wrongdoing. And that's true even in the scope of the nation of Israel. So you have God's chosen people. Um, they certainly play a unique role, but their sin actually brings about destruction and judgment, just like God says it's going to in, in the Old Testament. Yeah, you really, the theme that runs through the Bible is there is a sense of justice. And one of the themes I take out of this is do not assume that you can sin without consequences in your relationship to God. Do not assume that sin won't lead to judgment, because you you see it played out in the Old Testament. You see the forecast in the New Testament. You see the whole idea of judgment, God's judgment, which can be a, a beautiful reward, but it can also be the consequences and the punishment, the penalty for sin. And so Lamentations is, a Jeremiah understands that he said, we have sinned and there are consequences and we have just experienced the consequences of God's judgment. You know, judgment too takes on a little bit of a confusing role when we try and put it in a new Testament context, because we have places like, um, you know, in the new Testament in Hebrews, it talks about the discipline of the Lord, Mm -hmm. but we also, we also know that God is not punishing Christians for their sin. If you've been forgiven in Christ, the dis- the difference can be between punishment and discipline. So discipline can be unpleasant, and discipline can be something that God uses to grow us going through trials or suffering. Um, and that's different than oh, you've been punished for your sin. So one of the things I think 
when something bad happens, our first response a lot of times should not be, what did you do wrong that deserved this kind of punishment, right? right? And, and anybody that's ever been with somebody who's suffering knows that that is neither helpful nor oftentimes accurate. We talked about this in our Job podcast. Job is somebody who suffered righteously. But we also have to remember that there is a viable category for uh, suffering for unrighteousness, right? And, th- and this is the case, certainly, when we think about um, unbelief in the world and we think about sin, people that don't know God, there is punishment for sin, not just eternally, but temporarily here as well. And that doesn't even take into account the earthly consequences for sin. So we've got two categories that we've got to keep in tension if we're going to understand what Jeremiah is lamenting in this book. You have righteous people who suffer, and you have unrighteous people who suffer. And the reason for that can be different, but the goal, this is something you see through the whole book of Lamentations, the goal is actually the same. The goal for somebody who's being disciplined is to grow in faith, grow in dependence on God, grow in your trust of Him. And the goal of somebody who is reaping the consequences from God for their sin is also that that person might turn and repent and come to God. There's a great passage that was on my mind as I was reading this book this week in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul delineates between worldly grief and godly grief. So he says in 7.10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. One of the things that we have to remember is whether suffering is a result of sin or not, the goal of suffering can often be to turn our hearts and minds towards God and away from ourselves, away from the things that we've been depending on, away from the things that maybe have been taken away from us in suffering. And that's a really hard message, especially for someone that is suffering. But through the whole Bible, we see this crop up over and over and over again. Sometimes those difficult times are the things that bring us to God instead of pushing us away from Him. That's really true. And you really see that in the book of Lamentations, and you see it in the historical situation. First, the book of Lamentations, as you pointed out in chapters one and two, there's a confession. These things have happened. We're lamenting these things, but I know this happened because of our sin. When you get into chapter three, you get some some hope and you get a a little bit different perspective. But for example, a couple passages that you may know, Chapter 3, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, he's just gotten through talking about how the Jewish people's faithfulness was not great, but they know that even so, God is still there. Now, here's another passage in chapter 3, verse 55, long chapter. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. And so you see this sense that even so, this discipline of the Lord won't last forever, and the intention is for us to turn back. Now, the historical situation. So they are carried off. A portion of the Jews are carried off to Babylon in exile in 586, Daniel is one of those that goes as a young man, and Daniel is there at the beginning of the exile, but Daniel as an old man is there at the end. And so in 539 BC, so another 50 plus years later, the Babylonians are conquered, and the Persians who conquer them 
let the Jews go back and you get the continuation of the story. So they aren't in exile forever. God does bring them back a more faithful remnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you even see this in the book of Lamentations in, in that same chapter, chapter three, um, verses 31 and 32, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And this, this really ties into some of the New Testament concepts we're familiar with, that nobody is too far gone to turn to God and be saved. Right. And uh, it's impossible to out God's grace. Well, that, that's true through the whole Bible, um, even in different historical contexts. And here, even in the midst of Jerusalem being conquered, we see that hope of restoration, that redemption, by definition, comes when things have been ruined. You can't have redemption when things are going well. You can only have redemption when things have gone wrong, and then God redeems them and restores his people. And that that would probably be the, the second half of the big themes of lamentation I want to hit on is this theme of restoration, that God will not cast off forever, that his mercies are new every morning. Um, even the way the book ends in a plea for God to remember his covenant and his promises to Israel uh, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Well, we happen to know from the context of the Old Testament that even though God does lead them in exile, he actually restores and brings them back. I think it's kind of interesting Second Kings and Second Chronicles in some way are parallel accounts from a little bit different perspective on the end of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the exile, but both of them have a little glimpse of the return at the end of the books, whether it's the king eating at uh, the table in Babylon or whether it's the edict of Cyrus that the people are going to be able to come back. There's a little glimpse of restoration that's left there at the end, that even in the devastation of the exile, God is actually still working with his people. And and that's where I think we can hook into the promise that God will never leave or forsake. Even in the exile, he doesn't forsake his people. He he brings catastrophe on his people. He uh, brings in an army that destroys the temple. He exports these people across uh, the world, but he doesn't leave his people. In fact, if you look at the way the Old Testament is organized, it's really, you have three major periods in which the Old Testament is written. You have the Exodus, and right after that, you have a lot of the early books of the Bible that are written down. Um, then you have the time of David and Solomon, where you have a lot of things written down out of their reigns. And then you have the exile, where right. a lot of things are put together. A lot of prophets are active right before. In the midst of them coming back, you have the end of Second Kings and Second Chronicles, but you also have Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. You have some of the minor prophets who are at work. So God is working through the whole thing. And I think one of the promises of, of the lament we have in Lamentations is that even in the midst of catastrophe, God is not forsaking. He is drawing to himself. He may be punishing sin and wickedness, but as, as Jeremiah says, but his anger will not last forever. Yes, in a, and let me pull back a little bit because and just make this observation. There are a lot of ways to deal with suffering and difficulties in our lives. One is to reject God and go embrace whatever, self-help, you know, something, another path to deal with our suffering. The very fact that the book of Lamentations exists as a lament to God, a confession to God, a request to God to come restore us, 
tells you the, quote, strategy, if you will. The way the Jews dealt with it is by getting closer to God rather than farther away. And it seems to me throughout the whole Bible, if you want to make a life application, the only really satisfactory way to deal with suffering is to pursue God even more, to turn mm-hmm. either turn back to God or pursue him. You see that with Job, you see that with Lamentations, is they always turn back to God as the solution to their suffering as well. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.